Welcome back to Snares Book Prep Uncovered, the podcast where we talk to staff, pupils and parents to understand more about life at school. Each episode I'm joined by Ralph Dalton, head teacher at the school, and usually we speak to a guest, so it's a bit of a three-way conversation. But in this episode, we're talking about school, in particular some of the topics that parents want to discuss when they're looking at which school to send their child to. So if you're considering which school is right for your child, or if you're simply interested in finding out more about Snaresbrook Prep, then this is a great episode for you. But let's get into that right now for a conversation with a head teacher, Ralph Dalton. Ralph, good morning. Thank you for being here. How are you today? I am very excited, Simon. I have been up since, um, I was going to say 3am, I think it was 12 minutes past three. Why so early? Well, I was uh, actually thinking about two pupils that woke, it woke me up. I was thinking about um, were they on track and what we needed to do as a school to ensure that they would be on track. And yes, and then my then I was awake. So I, I actually ended up listening to... Um, a podcast called Empire, um, and it's looking at the history of the British Empire in India, uh, and that um, that set off a load a load more thoughts in terms of um, what we should be teaching the children in terms of that part of history. Because I don't know about you, I mean, I have never covered it in any part of history as a pupil, mm-hmm. um, and actually they were so it's a uh, the the podcast is is called Empire. It's hosted by Anita Anita Arnand and um, William Dalrymple. Dalrymple, uh, okay. Mm-hmm. And um, so Anita Arnand, she's a BBC sort of journalist, and they are they've they've both written a lot about the British Empire and the, and the fascinating, the well, I mean, lots of it is fascinating, but it, it all starts with the East India Company and the point they sort of make early on in the the episodes is that that's that's like Amazon, you know, this wasn't. Um, whilst it was a gov- no, it wasn't a government-sanctioned thing. Whilst it was, it had some royal patronage. It was essentially a private company, oh. um, and this private company ends up controlling huge parts of India, and then latterly that then transforms into British government control. But it's it's a fascinating piece of history. I mm. mean, I learned. I don't know. I mean, the thing that really, really excited me this morning. I'm going way off a tangent on our subject, but was the bite. You know, the expression "bite the bullet." Oh yeah. So the expression to bite the bullet when you have to do a um, an unpleasant task, but it needs to get done in order to do the job. Mm. So they were suggesting um, that this comes from um, when you load a rifle. So I didn't know much about this, but traditional muskets have a smooth barrel. Mm-hmm. Um, the rifle is so called because there's a groove. It's rifled on the inside, and that groove makes the bullet spin, oh, okay. which enables the bullet to travel further and more accurately. Mm-hmm. However, when you're loading the the sort of cartridge or the bullet, it's harder to get it in to the bottom of the the rifle. Mm-hmm. So they would grease it in um, animal fat and pig fat, mm-hmm. um, and to in part of the process, which you had to bite the cartridge or something, but this was mm-hmm. covered in pig fat. Eesh. So okay. it was unpleasant. Oh, I see. It, it was right. needed yeah. to be done. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, where this takes a rather dark and sinister turn in, in this piece of history is obviously um, lots of, I think, I think the term is supple turns, lots of the paid um, members of the East India Company Army and later British Army mm-hmm. were Hindu or Muslim. And obviously Hindus and Muslims can't eat pork. Of course. But they still had to do and were made to do this 
Mm. And so it's this sort of, and they didn't quite say this, but in my thinking it was, um, you know, this is somewhere between, um, you know, not understanding the cultural um, importance, not respecting it, deliberately not respecting it, through to even perhaps using it as a way of um, subverting Mm. um, people's, you know, religions. Because Mm. actually, um, I think they said that there's a belief that if you were to eat pork as a like a Hindu, that would put you outside the caste system and that prevents you being re- reborn. So then your soul is destined to wander in eternity, um, which is quite a big deal. Mm. So, Who knew that we'd be talking about this on, on this podcast recording? Like when I woke up this morning, I, I didn't expect to be talking about this at all. No, but I am so it's it's just, I don't know, just lit up a whole load of questions in my mind and uh yeah, so you find me terribly excited and slightly delirious from a lack of sleep, perhaps. I don't know. <laughs> so you didn't go back to sleep then after you woke at three o'clock to do this? No, because, I mean, I tend to get up just before five anyway, so about 4.40. So that's only an hour and a bit. Gosh, but 4.40, that, that's, that's an early time in itself, isn't it? Yeah, but that's... So, you, I mean, I try to get to work around seven, a bit before seven o'clock. So then to make sure... The, the only bit of the day you can control is that first bit when nobody else is awake. Mm-hmm. So that's when I make sure I sort of exercise, do my mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a bit of the day that I can control. So it's a, con- yeah. it's a control thing. <laughs> no, very, very impressive. And mindfulness is, is, is in the news quite a lot right now and uh, all for the right reasons, usually. Ralph, just tell us about where you are at the moment, just for the sake of people listening. We're recording this online, of course, but, um, but, but where are you? Just describe your surroundings. Yes, yeah, so I'm in, the, I'm in my office, um, which overlooks the playground. And interestingly, normally, if you hear any of the recordings, you'll be able to hear the playground. But if, I just, if I'm just silent for a moment... You'll hear there's no noise whatsoever. And that's because Nothing. pretty mm. much the whole school are have gone to the church to rehearse for tomorrow's um, spring concert. So it's a very odd feeling right now to have a very quiet school. Mm-hmm. A bit like when you're in school during holiday time or something like that. Yeah, that's particularly disconcerting. I mean, schools shouldn't be you know, experiencing an absence of children at all, should they? I mean, it's that noise of children being in school that makes it come alive. I mean, I, I have to say one of my favourite uh, sounds is the sound of a playground. And I know if you live next to a school, I know there are several people that don't feel that way. Um, I've, I've met several owners of houses that are not impressed by the sound of the playground, but I find the joy and the innocence um, of that sound very um uplifting Mm, mm. um i guess i would say that Mm. but and actually coming to your point about schools actually needing children probably does bring us quite nicely onto our topic today because we're sort of looking at prospective parents and their sort of questions but one of the things we encourage or almost insist on is that all parents um prospective parents come and visit the school and we do that during daytime school hours so they can actually see the school in session because that's when you get the best feeling for what a school is i think so ralph tell us what some of the main or initial questions are when when parents are trying to decide which which school to send their children to i mean they tend to ask um so first of all what's the process that can be quite you know when do you have to apply um so Mm -hmm. for us unlike a lot of schools um we hold open a certain amount of um, pupil places until the year before um, they would start whereas some schools will 
close their waiting lists three years in advance because as soon as they've got enough children, they will shut it. Um, so for us, um, because of that, it is we uh, we like parents to come round, like I say, on what's either an informal visit or an open morning, and mm -hmm. we hold through three of those a year. So that tends to be like, what's the process? That tends to be one of them. Ralph, why is it that you hold a few places open? So for example, my own children's uh, prep school education, when um, I had that embarrassing conversation with my wife's parents and said, oh, you know, my wife and I are pregnant, which I think is an odd one because it's basically saying, oh, look, you know what we did a couple of months ago, <laughs> um, which is not a conversation you ever think you're going to have with your girlfriend's Mm -hmm. parents mm -hmm. anyway um the uh her mum said right well you, you'll have to get their name down at the school and i was like no 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 you know mm. we haven't thought about that yet and and she said no you're going to need to do it because as soon as that child is born it needs to go on the list mm. because if you don't get your child's name on the list by the time you know if any other time it'll be too late mm. So it can be quite, um, if you don't know that about a school or you don't know that about the schools in the area, by the time you come, you know, you think, oh, well, I'm ahead of the game. You know, my child's approaching two. Maybe I'll start thinking about schools. Those lists, you know, you find yourself 368 on the list. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So our school um, took the view that to keep it slightly fairer, that they would leave a portion of the spaces open and they would decide all of those spaces the year before the September start. So that means if you've moved into the area or you didn't know what the process was, you still have a chance. Mm. Um, because often if, you, if, if private education is your first time or it's your first time into private education, you just don't know that. Mm. And so there's that, you get a lack of diversity simply because people who are new to the system don't know what the system is. So, mm. um, so yeah, that's why. Okay, so what else do people normally ask you then? Um, they normally ask about the size of our school. Um, so we are a one form entry school, which means there's one class per year group. Um, and we have, they normally ask about the class sizes. So um, in EYFS and Key Stage 1, we are around about 20 children. And EYFS, just tell us what that is. Yeah, that's early years foundation stage. Okay. Um, and we break that into two. There's the lower foundation stage, which is the year before the traditional school year. And then there's what we call upper foundation stage, which is what's known in the state sector as reception year. So that's the year they turn five. Mm. Um, so those classes are around about 20. Um, and then the key stage two classes are somewhere between uh, 16 and 18 in size. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah, so that's that tends to be a question they ask. Mm -hmm. Okay, and, and I imagine that I'm just trying to put myself in the shoes of a, of a prospective parent. Maybe, may, maybe the eldest of my children is now at starting school age. I imagine there are quite a lot of things that, that no, well, there are a lot of things I don't know, but a lot of things I don't know that I don't know, if you know what I mean. Yes. I mean, often, so you sometimes get questions around, do they need to be able to, what do they need to be able to do is there a test? I suppose those are a couple of the... Uh, for our school, there is no test. Um, mm -hmm. For some schools, they will, um, particularly at 4+, plus, there, there, will, there will be an entrance test at some schools, but at our school, there isn't. We just... Uh, what we are looking for is a, a family that shares the same sort of ethos that we have. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that we're looking for families that want a broad and balanced education for their child. Uh, we want a family that are ambitious for their child's educational outcomes, um, but not at the expense of their well-being, not at the expense of the the wider curriculum, um, and hopefully are looking for those uh, success at 11 in terms of going to an independent secondary school as a result of the of the education rather than seeing the prep school as a hothouse or a conveyor belt mm. um, to a desired location. So really allowing their child to have the space to grow and develop and be who they are mm-hmm. and then at 11 think, okay, which is the best secondary environment to let mm. them continue this journey you know as they grow older ralph you mentioned curriculum there i mean how do you get the balance right in school between delivering a high quality education this sounds like i'm selling the school as an advert this is a genuine question between a high quality education and also developing them as people their their social skills as children as they get older you know social etiquette all of these things that help us as we get older as children firstly i'm not sure they're entirely um I think they can coexist fairly happily. Um, I think I'm just as you as you ask the question, I'm, I'm thinking what would prevent, what culture would prevent that occurring? So an overly competitive or a competition has is a dual-edged sword. I think I think competition can be at its best. It's the thing that drives you to do better, um, to strive harder. You know, the I think Roger Bannister said, I would never have run the four minute mile had it not been for everybody who was just behind me at that moment. You know, mm, mm. Um, that's at its best, but at its worst, it can be very selfish. It can be very sort of centered on the individual. It can be full of pressure. So mm. I think it's about avoiding the negatives that come with trying to achieve an aim and keeping all the best things that come with trying to achieve an aim. So, for example, mm. first of all, you know, in terms of what we do here, we ensure that we don't sacrifice the other subjects. And again, we have subject specialists in Key Stage 2 teach those subjects so they, they, they can't get dropped because, you know, the, uh, Mr. Twist will turn up to do humanities. Um, so that's the first thing we do. The second thing is we make sure we, we really emphasise the process rather than the outcome. I believe that if you have a good process that's accurately identified and you stick to it, you know, diligently and with rigor um, and consistency, that's what delivers outcomes. Sometimes you can get outcomes without those, but it's down more down to luck. And what we we want is to deliver those outcomes, um, you know, continuously or with consistency. And then in terms of actually, you know, sort of like the manners or the social aspects, I think that's one of the very special things about the school because of its size, you know, all our children have to be able to get on, you know, they might not all be friends, but they are all friendly, mm. you know, and it's very much like being in an office that, you know, they have to learn um, to find ways to get along and they can't hide from disagreements, you know, so we work very hard on helping them navigate the disagreements, find closure on the disagreements, understand different points of view, um, and so actually, I think our children become very, um, they learn those social skills um, because of that. Whereas in a bigger environment, you know, you can fall out with your group of friends and you can find another group of friends and then you can fall out with them after a couple of months. Mm. And then you can move to your third group of friends 
and then you can fall out with them and then by the time you get to the first group they've sort of forgotten what it was all about and you start the process again so whereas mm. in a smaller setting here that doesn't that can't really happen mm. um, and so they do i think they learn a lot of very mature sort of social skills from that sense so that's mm. i mean that's how we those are some of the things we do to avoid you know or to get high academic outcomes at the same time as keeping mm. all the social elements Ralph, tricky question here, but how should a parent think about which school is right for their child? And the reason I'm asking that is because we, we all have a tendency to focus on what is normal for ourselves and everyone's version of normal is different from one person to another. And if one person themselves went to a very large school, for example, when they were young, then their version of normal is that children go to large schools and a, a small school like Snaresbrook might feel like it's not normal. But, but actually, that's considering themselves as the parent as what's normal and right for them compared to what's actually right for their child. So how should a parent, if they're willing to, shed what their own version of normal is and actually put the child first and think about what's right for their child? You know, that's an excellent, that's an excellent question. So I think the first thing, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't say first thing because that orders them. I'm not sure in which order these come. Let's say one of the things. So one thing to consider is when you're talking to the head or whoever is the representative of the school, depending who you've met, I think you've got to ask yourself, OK, when this all goes wrong, which it might do, you know, so when my child has a problem, who here is going to help me navigate that? And do I do I trust them? Hmm. I think that's I think that's an interesting question to hmm. think about. You know, do people feel like they are helpful? Do people feel like they are interested in trying to get your point of view, understand your perspective on a situation to solve it? Or is it such a, a big organisation that you get bounced around through departments? You know, the academic lead says, oh, actually, that's the pastoral lead who says, oh, actually, that's the form teacher who says, well, actually, no, you need to speak to the deputy head who says, well, actually, that's the form who says, actually, no, it's an academic issue. And you just think, oh, I give up. <clears throat> Mm. So that, that might be one thing. So depending on how, how do you want to approach the, the more troublesome issues, that would be something I would think about. Um, mm. You've then got the child and you've got to think about what is their experience going to be and what would they like their experience to be and what, where will they thrive? Now, I think that's easier to answer at 11 and actually is really important that the child has some input into that answer at 11 um, it's mm -hmm. harder to do it three or four because one, they can't express it to you. And two, you only have a limited amount of sort of time with them to have known. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. You've only had three years of which, you know, their personality mm. is starting to come out. Maybe, you know, you know, so that can be slightly harder. But that, I mean, again, I do think if you're particularly when you talk about secretary, that's why I think it's really important to to have the prep school to 11 and not sort of move at certainly four years or seven i think you want to look at their interests and again this is so i will often say to parents who have very sporty children and for parents for whom sport is really important mm. where does your child do sport um, if they do it outside of school and they do plenty of it outside of school and you're not looking to school to provide that sporting provision then brilliant we can meet that need if however um, because of work commitments or whatever, you're looking to school to meet that sporting provision, then we certainly 
possibly aren't the school for you. Or you would need to think about how you were going to meet that provision outside of what we can provide because we have such small mm. grounds effectively. And then you would want to think, okay, which settings meet that need best? So for example, often schools that have boarding provision meet that need best because they have that boarding, they have that provision for all their boarders. And it goes, mm. it goes, you know, to eight o'clock at night and they have the sports fields. So, you know, the likes of Felstead or Bishop Stortford College, you know, do that really well. So you've got those practical considerations. So again, if it was a, in a musical sense, you know, how much practice space do they have? How much, you know, um, how much access to peripatetic staff do they have? Again, it might be, because what you're looking to do, I think, again, is look for, can the child be successful and be recognised by their peer group in something that they think is important, but also the school recognises as important? So again, particularly mm. at secondary, you know, you're looking at drama. You know, if you love drama, but the school doesn't do anything, or if the school doesn't really value the drama, mm -hmm. then that's going to affect how you feel about yourself. And I think that will ultimately affect your academic outcomes too. Mm. Um, mm. Again, that's slightly harder at a prep school age. And again, for us here, lots of our parents will say to us that we're really looking for our child to be confident. Um, mm. And I tend to feel that where our school really, because of its size and its intimacy, where it delivers where others cannot just because they're too full entry is giving children space to experiment and be themselves and then be successful at that because it gets mm. crowded out in larger environments. Um, mm. You know, if you imagine you're in a class of 24, you're taking a risk in front of more people. Um, mm. When it's a smaller group that you know better, you're more likely to take that risk. Um, mm. There's more opportunities for your voice to be heard rather than in a class of 24 or, a, you know, a year group of 48 or, you know, year groups of 66. You may never make the football team. But here, mm. when we have a fixture, if you're in years, you know, and it's an under 11 fixture, if you're if you're good enough in year four, you'll probably play. Mm. You know, so you get mm. that opportunity to be seen and importantly, noticed by the year fives and the year sixes and that builds your self-esteem. Um, mm. So, again, it really is trying to match the environment and the culture to the, the sort of uh, character of, of the child. Tell us other ways that Snaresbrook is different to other schools and not along the lines of it being an, an advert for the school, but it's just kind of gen, genuine ways in which the school is different. Well, it's, uh, the biggest way is, is our size. You know, we're in a what would have been a lovely house and that gives it I think that does give it the family feel straight away you walk up and it feels like a house and very much the almost every situation we we face we start from the position of saying okay if you were my child and it's the school is so intimate that we know the children so well and everybody knows mm. the children you know so if you speak to teachers in larger settings they they might know of a name in the other class but they won't have come across it they may mm. the younger those that teach younger years tend to know more of the names than those in the older years so the year six teachers know very few because they only see them when they get to year six mm. um, yeah so and because we know them and we know them as a group um whatever we are doing we will be thinking about okay what about that child though 
is this really going to you know how's this going how's this child going to interact with this experience so if it was Mm. you know today going for a rehearsal okay oh that's it well hang on let me just think is that child how are they going to interact with that what do i need to Mm. give them to support them um Mm. you know or what do i need to do to stretch them in that and i think that comes about from the intimacy and you can't you you can't do it even at two form entry schools with classes of 24 you you can't do it you can try but i've yet to find a school where i think they do it they can do it as well tell me other ways in which school is different as well at key stage two all our subjects are taught by a teacher specializing in the subject we also have philosophy on the curriculum that's taught by a, a a specialist that's not done in every school. So does that mean that the children move around the school building instead of being in the same classroom? Uh, currently, actually, the teachers move. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're trying to strike that blend in key stage two between the comfort, uh, the sort of um, the familiarity that you tend to find in a primary setting um, with getting them secondary ready to move around a bit. Oh, OK. So they get the assurance of being at their own desk all the time. Yeah. But they get the variety of different teachers and that sensation of this lesson is this person yeah. and that lesson is with that person. Yeah. And also, but also we might change the seating plans. Teachers will change the seating plans to give them a different oh. perspective in the yeah. room. You know, just again, mm. you know, you don't want to be from the child's perspective. If I was sitting, what would my daily experience be like? So, I mean, mm. that's slightly mm. different. But again, and I would say this, we really focus on the details and the rigor so yes every school teaches maths but i'm not convinced they well i mean i know they don't use the same scheme as us and i am so Mm. passionate about the math scheme we use um and why it is better than anything out there that i think that's a key difference but you know we are constantly trying to work from research informed practice you know, rather than just, well, I think this is a good idea. And we're constantly focused on the pupil's journey. So what's sometimes termed school efficacy. So, you know, we want to make sure that the child, as they progress through the year, there's no gaps where they, they why, you know, where they lose. They're always making progress. They're always in the zone of proximal mm. development. So again, because of our size, you know, one teacher now will teach them humanities for four years. So they, mm. So that teacher knows where they are. Mm. that continuity of the curriculum is is assured and that's different to a lot of places there, there there's some sort of smaller but quite important ways that we're different ralph i'm keeping an eye on time we probably need to bring this episode to a close in a minute if i was a prospective parent and i had more questions though what's the best way that i should get in touch with school should i go to the website and and just call the school phone number that's on the website definitely um either uh, yes, go to the website. The telephone number will be on there. The um, email address is office at snaresbrookprep.org. Um, you could email and um, I'm sure Mrs. Redding will, sure it be Mrs. Redding will contact you. Um, and then really the next step is to either attend an open morning. So they, there tends to be one a term um, or arrange an, what we call an informal visit. And I'll happily show you around the school and answer your questions. Oops, sorry. That's to remind me to... Um, check on a pupil yes and i'll show you around and answer any questions you have and uh, we can take it from there fantastic that's really good well i better let you go if you need to go and check on that pupil but uh, <laughs> thank you <laughs> but thanks for being here and thanks for talking about what what some of the some of the questions that prospective parents tend to ask oh that's been a pleasure thanks simon 
So that was Ralph Dalton, head teacher at Snaresbrook Prep. And we talked about life at school, what makes it different, and some of the questions that parents ask when they come to visit. For more information, do check out the website, snaresbrookprep.org, link in the show notes. Now, our next episode is coming out soon, but in the meantime, thank you for listening to this one. Don't forget to follow or subscribe so you can stay in touch, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now.